Chapel, Mason City. Now, people have been trying to figure this out for a long time throughout history, and they've approached it in different ways. Some people have isolated themselves, become sort of hermits. Other people have tried to create utopian societies. Other people, on the other hand, have just said, to heck with it, I'll just be like the world. I won't try to live like Christ in this fallen world. Well, none of these are the solution. Peter gives us the solution here today, and it is to be holy to be holy. And that's what I've called the message today. Be holy. How to live clean in a dirty world. Now, let's get into the text. He says, for this reason, wait, that was his brother, second Peter. (laughs) This doesn't seem right. I thought I studied all week. Okay, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout this, uh, throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Father in heaven, we do appreciate you, and we thank you for your word, and we do ask that you would teach us today, make this book speak to our hearts by the power of your spirit, beyond the words of a mere man. Would you speak to us supernaturally through the teaching of your word? We do ask in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Very simple. In light of our great salvation, Peter here is telling them how they ought to live. That's what you see when you see the word therefore. It's a conclusion word. So everything that came before the word therefore, then he says, therefore, in conclusion, since this is true, because of this. So in light of our great salvation, God expects us to live holy lives motivated by the sacrifice Christ has made for us, loving one another with self-sacrificing love. To help us do this, it's helpful to understand three things that we see in our passage here. Number one, the conduct of the saved. Number two, the motivation of the saved. And number three, the love expected of the saved. These are three things that we see in this passage here today. First of all, the conduct of the saved. He says, therefore, in conclusion, in light of this great salvation that God has given us, 
gird up the loins of your mind. Now, remember, Peter's writing this context. This is written by the Apostle Peter about 67 AD, and he's writing to Christians that have been dispersed around Asia Minor that are facing harsh persecution. They've been forced out of Rome, and now they're dispersed. They're aliens. They're strangers in a foreign land. They've settled down temporarily in places that are not so welcoming uh, to them. In fact, they're very, the people are very suspect of Christians. There's a lot of rumors going around about Christians. And so they're living in an uncomfortable place where Christians are being persecuted. And so he says, last time, you can have joy in the midst of trials because of these great things about your salvation. And he says, but what I want you to do, here's how I want you to live now. Even though you're dealing with this hardship, even though you're dealing with this uncertainty and these causes possibly for fear, he says, you need to gird up the loins of your mind. Now, I don't know if you've used that phrase this last week, but in the Orient, what would happen is men would wear long flowing robes. And when it came time to take some sort of action, uh, working, uh, running, fighting, you would gird up the loins of your robes, tuck it in your belt. Guys, remember Ephesians talked about, you know, girding up your loins and putting on the belt of truth, right? Now, so that's what he's talking about. He's saying, you need to gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, stop just letting your mind flop all around. Now, in times of testing, you can't just let your mind flop around all over the place. That's what he's saying. Got to gird up the loins of your mind. Any thoughts obstruct, obstructing the hope and optimism of our salvation must be removed. And they can be. That's what's so exciting. When God tells you to do something in his word, his spirit is going to enable you to be obedient to it. And albeit maybe not perfectly, because the spirit is willing, although the flesh is weak. But when God gives a command, he supplies the ability to obey the command. Going through hard times, get your mind together. That's what he's saying here. And he says, be sober. Notice the words there. He's not talking about not being intoxicated, although certainly that's commanded in the Bible is not to be intoxicated. But when he says, be sober, he says, be serious. Have the ability to look at your life seriously. There are some people that just do not have the ability to be serious, it seems. And you're talking with them and you're like, holy smokes, man. Like, what planet are you on? You're like on a roller coaster or something. And that's what he's saying is in, in these times, you're living in this sort of life where you need to have control of your mind and you need to be able to look seriously at what's going on and be calm and be self-controlled. Now... He says, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, Peter says, keep your mind wholly, perfectly, undoubtedly banking on what is coming when Jesus comes again. Set your mind on that. Rest your mind in that. Now, that term, the revelation of Jesus Christ, when I went to church as a kid, uh, I didn't even realize that Jesus was a real Person, I thought I didn't even understand that. I didn't even know there was extra biblical historical evidence, overwhelming evidence to testify to the person of Christ and, and considerable amount that he was crucified and resurrected. And I didn't even understand there was extra biblical evidence about these things, that he was a real man that walked the earth, that was crucified, buried, and resurrected. I didn't even know that. And I certainly didn't know that he's coming again. Now, he talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's mentioned no less than four times in Peter's letter here. Jesus is coming back. Now, Titus 2.3 says, We're looking forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
1 John 3, 3 says, anyone who has this hope, the hope that he's coming back, purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, John's talking about the same thing. Titus, you know, Paul's talking about the same thing in Titus. Peter talks about the same thing. Jesus says he's coming again. The Bible is clear that Christ is coming again. And so what Peter says is you're going through hard times. You're living in a post-Christian world, if you will. This book is completely relevant, by the way, to the day and age that we are rapidly approaching. He says, in times like that, what you need to do is you need to be able to gather up your thoughts, you need to be sober, and you need to intentionally focus your hope on the fact that Christ is coming back and what you're going to get then. There are three things that, three elements of salvation. When a person is saved, they are justified. That means when you come to Christ and say yes to Jesus Christ, you are justified. And God looks at you just as if you'd never sinned and just as if you'd always obeyed. That's an easy way to remember it. Justification. In other words, the court case against you with your sin has been thrown out. You've been justified. The penalty has been paid. Your faith in Christ is real. So therefore, You have been justified. Your sin will no longer be held against you. It's paid for. Now, in your life day-to-day, day-to-day, you experience what's called sanctification. It's the process of being set apart more and more from your sin and your worldliness and becoming more and more like Christ here and now. Now, there's a third element of our salvation, which is called glorification. And that's the point when either in the rapture or in the resurrection, you will see Jesus face to face. Either one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to die physically and see Jesus face to face, or he's going to rapture the church and you're going to see him face to face. And when that happens, you are going to be glorified. So justified, sanctified, finally glorified. And that's what Peter's talking about here. He's saying, look forward to what's going to happen when you see him face to face. When you will no longer have perversion and sin and corruption and a divided heart, it will just all be about Jesus finally. I'm so tired of the things that go along with being in this fallen world, and I so look forward to seeing him. And I hope in that. And like John says, in that hope, that hope that you're going to see him one day, it kind of has a purifying effect on your life right now, right? I wouldn't want to see him doing a few things that I used to do, (laughs) you know? He says that it's a gift of grace. Just as much as justification, just as much as sanctification is grace, the glorification is grace too. It has to be grace because sinners are not worthy of these things. It has to be grace. It has to be a gift given from God to you, which he graciously gives because he loves you. Now, what I want you to take away from this is for you to know today that it is impossible with the power of the Holy Spirit for you to control your thoughts and not have your thoughts control you. Some of you, that's why you struggle with anxiety so bad. That's why you struggle with depression. That's why there are so many people struggling with the lies of this world about gender dysphoria and all this other different stuff is because they cannot control their minds. They let their minds, they're letting what people are impressing on them control them through their thoughts rather than taking control of their thoughts and bringing their thoughts into the captivity of Christ, being obedient to what the Bible says. God expects his people to read his truth, to understand it, and then to use the mind to believe it. The things that you believe dictate the, you know, the things you think, the things you believe lead to the ways that you act. And so what he's saying is get control of your mind 
And I want you to know that it's absolutely possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Number two, within this first section, you thought, good grief, this is a short sermon. No, this is one of those Puritan type of sermons where every point has 15 points. No, I don't like that. Number, sub point number two of point one. That's how John Stott used to do it. You guys ever familiar with John Stott? He'd be like, okay, major heading number one. Now moving into sub point number two. <laughs> like, okay. Having the conduct, the conduct of the saved, number one, is having a ready mind. Number two is rejecting worldliness. Look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. God expects his children to be obedient and not to conform themselves to the former lusts. Now, this word lusts in America in 2023, we think of it primarily the word just has a sexual connotation to it. You know, um, those of us that grew up in the 80s, you know, like Cinemax after dark, you know, like we think of that as lust in this world. But that's not the way the word was used in this context. The word epithumia, it's a compound word. Epi means over and thumia, desire. So it has the idea of an over desire. And so what he's saying here is before you lived for Christ, you simply lived for self. The desires that you served in your life, these were over-desires. You were over-desiring these things. They were controlling your lives. You were like an animal, in a sense, because you just lived for your own appetites, your own desires. You didn't have any other option before serving Christ. It was all about you. You were the center of your conduct. You were the center of how you lived your life. You were the captain of your ship. And he says, now that Christ has become the captain of the ship, he says, what you need to do as obedient children is, is you don't want to conform yourself to these former lusts. You don't want to go back to living self-centered lives. You don't want to go back to living lives where meeting your own needs and desires is your top drive in life. Now, that could be very tempting for people that are in Babylon, for that are people that are in, you know, a post-Christian world when the heat gets turned up. It could be easy to say, you know what, to heck with this Christianity stuff. There's too much heat involved with it. I'm just going to go back to living for self. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever felt that pressure. I mean, I have to confess, there's been, there have been some times where I thought, you know, I want to go back into, I, I want to go back to Hollywood, man. <laughs> so I can resonate with what he says here. I can receive this warning. Now, he goes on saying next that a ready mind is, uh, uh, you know, or the conduct of the saved is not only a ready mind, it's not only rejecting worldliness, but it is being given to holiness. Look at verse 15. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Now, when it says he who called you is holy, this is talking about the holiness of God. A lot of people like to talk about uh, the love of God, beautiful attribute. God is love, First John. Like the, a lot of people talk about the grace of God, the wisdom of God. The holiness of God is what's being talked about here. Now, what it means to say that God is holy, it means quite simply, to put it as simple as can be, it means that he's in a class all of his own. He is completely separate from everything that you can even fathom. Everything in this created realm is his creation. Anything in this creation is not God. God is separate outside of his creation. Everything within his creation is something that he made deliberately, intentionally. But he's altogether separate. He's altogether other from that. He's not like us in this sense. One of the tragedies I think of 
You know, it's so weird. I mean, like, it's like riding a horse. You fall off one side or the other if you're not careful, right? And so we went through a big phase, uh, you know, in the church of um, how God is our friend. And that's true. God is our friend. And remember one time Jesus says, you know what? I don't, I don't call you, you know, servants anymore. I call you friends because you know what I'm doing. And that's a great thing to meditate on. Now, probably some of you in this room need to meditate on the fact that God is your friend, you probably really need to take that to heart, that Jesus is your friend. He's like your older brother and like God is a loving father. Some of you probably really need to get that into your heart. But there are probably some of you that need to get into your heart that he is the holy, eternal, spotless, perfect, totally awesome, unfathomable creator. That if you were even to catch a glimpse of him, just dead. Moses says, let me see your glory. He says, you can't do that. So he put him in the cleft of the rock. And he passed before him, and Moses just simply could see and handle his afterglow, right? You can't fathom uh, this God because he's altogether separate. He's altogether other. He's altogether pure. We can't even fathom pure. We don't understand even what that word means in this context, in, in the mind of God. And so Peter says, because God is altogether other, because he's altogether separate from the way this world does things, if he has called you to himself, shouldn't you be moving in that direction? Much confusion about the word holy today. When God is telling you to be holy, he's telling you to be separate. He's telling you to be like him. I brought a picture of some shoes I used to have. These are called Reebok pumps. That's the exact model I used to have, 90s Reebok pumps. Does anybody ever remember those? You have to have been like 80s, 90s person. So on the tongue right there, there's a little basketball thing, and you pump them up, dude. I'm not kidding. Like, they go, and they support your foot, and then there's a valve in the back, and then you sit in class all day, and you're like, and people, stop that. I had these shoes, and they were only for basketball. So I didn't wear them anywhere else except for on the court because they were totally set apart for a special purpose. I didn't want them to get stained. I didn't want them to get gum in the soles. They were pristine. That's what it means to be set apart. You're, you're holy. You're set apart for a special purpose. God says, if I've called you for a holy special purpose... then why the heck are you allowing yourself to get so stained? He says, I don't want you to do that. You live in a world that's in a post, you're in a post-Christian world with an incredible amount of pressure to become like it. But you have a special purpose. You've been called to my purposes. So why are you letting yourself get so stained? Be holy, for I am holy. The conduct of the saved, a ready mind, rejecting worldliness, given to holiness, fearing the Lord, verse 17. And if you call on the Father, in other words, if you pray to God, if you pray to him, you call him your Father, it says, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now, what he's saying, if you pray to God, you need to realize that this same God who you call Father, he is going to judge your conduct. 
There is a day coming described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I would commend that chapter to you for your notes, for your homework this week. Why don't you read that chapter and you'll get an idea of what we're talking about here. There is a day coming when Christians will stand before the Lord himself in what is known as the Bema seat, the seat of rewards. And every bit of your conduct will come up. On, it'll just come up right there. And, and he will examine everybody your conduct. It's sort of like, this is a crude illustration, but it's sort of like we have this screen here. There will come a time and every single word, thought, deed, motive, action, non-action, every single thing I've ever done in my life is going to come up and I'm going to be standing there face to face with Jesus. And uh, I'm going to be going, with a lot of that stuff, I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, thank you for your grace, Lord. You know, not stuff before Christ, stuff after Christ. Before Christ, it was the stuff I did. After Christ, it's the, more or less the stuff I failed to do. Admittedly. But that day is coming when he's going to judge our conduct. And so look at his conclusion. He says, if this is the case, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay. While you're on earth, conduct yourself in fear of the Lord. Reverential awe and respect for this God you don't hear many Christians talking about the fear of the Lord today, but man, it is an incredible motive for godly living. I would put it, I would, I would guess this. I would say when you see a Christian that's kind and loving and Christ-like and obedient to the things God's called them to, I would, I would think that that person, that guy, that gal has a healthy fear of the Lord. I really like accountability. Um, I've learned that as a man, that I cannot operate without accountability. Like my, one of my mentors told me one time, he says, if you can't follow me with skin on, how can you follow invisible Jesus? And I was like, well, that's a good point. <laughs> you know, and he gets in my face, man, and he challenges me primarily about the kind of husband I am. Then, you know, the kind of pastor I am comes later. That's important, but that's not as important as the kind of husband I am and the kind of worshiper that I am. And he confronts me about those things. And, and I like the accountability. One of the things he does is he listens to my sermons. He scrutinizes my sermons. And I, he's, I'm going to get it on this one. And uh, so... I know that that's coming, and so it makes me pay more attention at, at, with what I'm doing. It helps me to be sober. It helps me to understand that I've got a little bit of time to do something important, and then there's a mark to hit. It's not just, it's not just feelings and figure everything out and floating through life. I have a mark to hit. Right? And that's what the fear of the Lord does is it, it reminds you that there's a bullseye, man. There's a mark to hit in life. And it's Christ-likeness in this fallen world. It's opportunity to do something for Christ, to do that which you're called, that's what you're born for, to fulfill your calling, to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And there's a day coming where you're going to be able to stand there and you're going to look at all the things you've done in your life and you're going to say, this all belongs to you, Jesus. And it's going to be the most rewarding thing. It's a beautiful thing. I'm looking forward to that. God, help me to get out of my own way. I'm my own worst enemy. Remember, your life, you young people, your life is under the watchful eye of a God who loves you that's concerned that you hit the mark. Not to earn salvation. To do that which you're called to do. To fulfill your calling, your purpose. He put you here for a reason. He wants you to fulfill that reason. 
Conduct of the saved, ready mind, rejecting worldliness, given to holiness, living in the fear of the Lord. In light of our great salvation, God expects us to live holy lives, set apart lives. Now the motivation of the saved. Here we go with number two. The first motivation that a saved person has in their heart as they try to live a, a holy, balanced life, and another motive of that is found right here in verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. So the word redeemed, I love when I see that word in the Bible because you know what that word is? That's a word that's dealing with slavery. And what's, what the Bible says clearly, there's many different aspects. It's like a diamond with a bunch of different facets. There are many different aspects in which your salvation is described in the Bible. And one of them is redemption. Before Christ, you were in slavery to Satan, to the prince of the power of the air of this fallen world. Satan is the prince of the air. He's the one that everybody that's born into this, born into the sin of Adam, is born under the sway of the evil one. You say, well, that kind of explains what, every time I turn on the news and I see these people killing one another and all this stuff, it kind of explains that, yeah, it does. <laughs> now, when I see that word redemption, what it's saying is, I was bought out of slavery. I am no longer a slave to those things. And he says right here, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. In the Greek text, it's diminutive. Dim, diminutive. It means that they're small, small coins. There were these small little coins that were used to buy slaves out of slavery. And he says, you weren't, you weren't redeemed with those things. What sprung you from sin and death, and slavery to the enemy? What, what got you out of that? He says right there, it's the precious blood of Christ. Notice also, he says that you were redeemed from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers. You see, before you embraced Christ and his purpose for your life, you were essentially following the tradition of your fathers in this sense. And now you can put this into any context. You could just, just a person, you know, say you're born into a house that just doesn't know Christ at all and could be good people, you know, by world standards, teach you that life's about being happy and, you know, pursuing a career and uh, all really great things. Happiness is great. Pursuing a career is really good things. But, but it's aimless in the sense that when you die, that's done for. You know, the best you can hope to do is leave some money to somebody else behind you. I love how Solomon jokes about that in Ecclesiastes. He says, you know, he says, you work your whole life, you make a bunch of money, and then you hand it down to your kid and it ruins them because they never have to do anything for it. He says, it's vain. It's all vanity. That's what he's getting at here. He's saying living for anything less than the glory of God, it's aimless because it doesn't amount to anything eternally. It makes a lot of sense, right? Now, before you embraced Christ, you were living for something far beneath your true purpose. You were created by God, for God, to fulfill God's eternal purpose for your life. Apart from this, it's aimless. With every life, whatever you're doing with your life, if you're doing it for Christ's sake, with eternity in mind, it's glorious. You weren't redeemed with these little tokens, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Now here's the motive for holy, godly, set-apart living is the blood of Christ. Precious, costly, tremendously valuable blood of God himself. Wrap your mind around that before, you know, for a second. It's, it's the, the blood of God himself. 
It's stack. I can't even wrap my mind around these things. To buy you and me out of slavery to an empty, meaningless life, slavery to sin and the devil and death, Jesus paid with his shed blood. Now, we have been bought out of the slave market. We've been released and set free. And he says, as a lamb, without blemish and without spot, Peter tying Jesus to the fact that he's the fulfillment of the whole Passover picture. The Passover lamb was sacrificed. Uh, you know, the Jews did that to commemorate uh, coming out of Egypt when they were sprung from slavery and the, the blood of the lamb was put over the doorpost. The angel of death hopped over and then they, you know, went out into the Exodus. Now, this lamb had to be spotless and without blemish. In other words, it couldn't have birth defects and it couldn't have any injuries. And in this same sense, spiritually, Jesus could have no sin, no blemish, no defilement. In sales and business, I learned something when I used to work in California. I worked at a guitar center and a music store. And this guy comes in one day and he goes, and it's Orange County, right? Newport Beach area. And I was from Iowa, and I didn't know how they did things out there. And uh, this guy comes in one day, and he's like, I want to buy a studio, bro. And I'm like, okay, cool. You know? And he goes, I got 100 grand. And I was like, you don't have to spend that much money on a studio. I was like, I could set you up a studio for a grand. And my boss comes up to me, and he goes, whoa, <laughs> come over here. You know? And he takes me in the back, and he's like, he's like okay, you're, you're, he's like, welcome to California. He's like, you're thinking with your wallet. And I said, oh, and he goes, if that guy wants to pay a hundred grand for something that's worth a grand, let him pay a hundred grand. And I was like, noted, you know, here's the point. If you've been in sales or in business, you know that something is worth as much as what someone's willing to pay for it. You ever struggle with worth issues? Self-worth? How much was Christ willing to pay for you? Think of it. Something is only worth as much as somebody's willing to pay for it. And he paid for you with his precious blood. With, for me. For me. Someone so undeserving. Such a mess. Blasphemous turning from him, so sinful. He was willing to pay that much. I have this couch, this brown leather couch that my dog has completely ruined. It was given to me as a wedding gift, Aaron and me. And I came back, to, I used to work at a hotel, and the guy said, here, have this couch, it's, it's a wedding present. And so, well, that's really nice. And um, so, come back to work the next week, and this guy, Randy, he's mad at me. I said, well, what do you mean? Oh, I had my eye on that. He was the, he was the uh, maintenance guy. And he wanted that couch and the chairs that matched it. And he wanted it and wanted it. And he, you know, it was, it was a Natuzzi. I mean, it's old leather. It, the thing was not worth, wasn't worth that 200 bucks. This guy's offering me all kinds of money for it. <laughs> so, what do you want? This? Well, he was working on a hot rod and uh, he, wanted a, he wanted that leather for the seat. He had his eye on it for like 15 years working at this hotel. You know, ever since the hotel had opened, this furniture had been there. And the boss goes and gives his precious couch away to us for our wedding gift. Uh, he says, well, I didn't want him to cut it up. Here, you can use it. Like, okay, so I used it and you know, we still use it. And, uh, but this guy was offering way more than it was worth. It was worth as, you know, how much is the couch worth? As much as Randy's willing to pay for it. How much are you worth? 
as much as Jesus was willing to pay for you. You got to remember that here today. You got to know that. That brings healing to your life. You say, I'm worthless. Well, not to Jesus, you're not. If Christ was willing to pay with his blood for you, you must be worth something now. If that is so, why do you treat yourself like junk, living in sin? What a motive for godly living. Friends, don't live beneath your worth. Incredibly practical. The stuff that you're spending the majority of your time on, are you worth more than that? The stuff that you find yourself tripped up in. Think about it. Don't live beneath your worth. Motivated by the cost of redemption. Here, we're also motivated by the eternal plan that we're part of. Verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. He's talking about the plan of redemption. Jesus Christ was foreordained. He was hand-selected before the foundation of the universe to be the lamb of God that took away the sin of the world, says in the book of Revelation. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I can't even wrap my mind around it. It's always been the plan. This is a motive for godly living. Everything's going according to plan. You're part of a plan. When you're suffering, when you're struggling, get your mind and say, I'm part of something a lot bigger than what's going on right here, right now. No. Motivated to holy living by the cost of redemption, by the eternal plan I'm part of, also by the hope of my resurrection, verse 21. Who through him believe in God, that is you through Jesus, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He's saying Here's a motive for holy living, for godly living, because as sure as Jesus' resurrection happened, yours is guaranteed. Death can't hold me. The pressure that comes into our lives, which may increase, to hold to honoring Christ, there's nothing in this world that can break your relationship with the Lord. It's eternal. For the Christian, and I'm not saying I live, I'm, I, you know, I have fears just like anybody else, but I know this truth that death is the best thing that could happen to any of us because our resurrection is guaranteed just like as sure as his happened, yours is going to happen. This is a motive for godly living. Look, I can face the pressure that's going to come into my life by maintaining godly living because the grave isn't the end. You want to kill me for living like Jesus? You want to arrest pastors for teaching the Bible? It's, I mean, in Utah, in 1960, or just recently, too, June 2023, Utah banned the Bible in public schools altogether, uh, banned in libraries because of the violence and the uh, hatred that's in it. I, you know, the point is, the pressure that we could face I'm, you know, I'm not trying to sound weird, but I mean, the worst thing that they could do is kill you. I'm trying to adjust to this. I feel like that's what the Spirit is saying to the church, you know. It's time to start to adjust to these things. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get serious about these things. Our future is sure. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to, remember, he was uh, Lazarus. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Amen. 
1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22, uh, 22. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52, I love it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. I love that passage. You know what that tells me? Either I'm going to die physically or the rapture is going to happen one or the other. And either way, I'm going to see Christ face to face. And he says it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. Could you do something for me for a second? We just blink your eye. See how long that took? It's going to take less than that. When the rapture happens, less than that. Can you imagine? Does that motivate you to godly living? Oh, my goodness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, shall be raptured with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? You're either going to die physically or you're going to be raptured, one or the other. You can't beat it. You just can't beat it. Motivated to holy living by the cost of my redemption, the eternal plan I'm part of, the hope of my resurrection. Number three, our final point. Here's the love that is expected of the saved. Dealing again with our conduct. Our conduct in a world that is post-Christian. He says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, talking about trusting in the gospel, you were forgiven of your sins, since we have purified, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere Philadelphia of the brethren. You see, the word translated love there is the word Philadelphia. It means brotherly love. So what he's saying there is he's saying, since you, Peter's readers, since you, church, have purified your souls, you believe the gospel, you've been saved through the Spirit, you have sincere Philadelphia for the brethren. Then he says, agape one another fervently. So they had brotherly love, Philadelphia, but he says, you need agape as the church. Now, Philadelphia is brotherly love. It's, 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 you could say you really like somebody. It's the love of liking a lot. It's like, I really might like the fact that, you know, you're a very snappy dresser. I like that. I like the fact that you're really good at checkers. I, I just like all kinds of things about you. I just, I like you. Now, by the way, that's a good thing to have in a church. You know, and I'm not going to go on some tirade here, but the American church model has turned into uh, this whole thing where, you know, it's like people want to check a box. They bump into one another a little bit and they have like these really shallow relationships where it's like, well, we're close enough. You know, greeting time's like, oh, hey, how you doing? I'm you know, pretty good. And everybody puts on this little face and nobody's, you know, everybody's kind of guarded and just, you know, not really, they don't really like each other, but they just show up to church because it's a religious duty that makes them feel like they're appeasing God's wrath, you know, through their obedience to church attendance or something, or the neighbors like them because they do it or it's just what we do and, and that's really unfortunate man that just you know sometimes you go to a church and it's just people just seem like they don't like each other now on the other hand you've got churches where you have greeting time and you're like okay you got to stop with the greeting already we got to keep moving you know and that's what I think of this church you know it's like welcome your neighbor here to Calvary Chapel you know and it's like everybody's like oh geez and uh, people talk to one another throughout the week and I, I'm, I, I am bragging about Calvary Chapel sorry I love you guys 
But Philadelphia is a good thing to have in a church. Brotherly love, to like one another. But he says, I'm calling you to something else. I'm calling you to agape. Now, agape is a whole other kind of love. It's, it's actually a higher love. Because this love isn't dependent on anything being lovable in the person that it loves. This is the kind of love that God had for us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. When we were as unlovely as could be, it's a good reminder, friends, that our fallen sinful nature is as unlovely as it could be in the eyes of God. That's a good thing to remember. When God sees that sinful nature in us, that fallen nature, it's absolutely repulsive to him. He can't look upon it. It requires death on his part. But he has agape for you, and he loves me so much that he can look at me and just say, man, that's a blasphemous mess of a human being that wants nothing to do with me. He's self-centered. He wants to just please him. But you know what? I love him. And I'm going to send my son, and I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to make a huge sacrifice for the good of that guy down there that doesn't even want anything to do with me. I'm going to win his heart. That's agape. Agape is the picture of what Hosea has for Gomer in the book of Hosea. Marry a, marry a woman that's going to be a prostitute. What? You sure, God? Yes. Marry a woman that's going to be a prostitute. You're going to get married to her, and she's going to, you know, just kind of take advantage of the whole situation. and doesn't really, Her feet are not going to stay at home, as the proverb says, and she's going to go wander around, and she's going to spread herself to every other guy, and to the point to where she gets herself in uh, slavery, and she's naked on the, on the, you know, on the slave block. And then after she does that, after she breaks your heart repeatedly over and over and over again until the lump just doesn't go away, at that point, I want you to go buy her back out of slavery and welcome her back into your home. What? Well, that's agape right there. That's agape love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It's always hopeful. It endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever. That's what he's saying Christians need to have for one another in the church. He's saying that's the kind of love. He's saying... I'm commanding you, Christian, to love this person sitting next to you even though they're not lovable, possibly, you know, in your eyes. Or you don't, maybe you don't even like something about them or maybe they've hurt you or maybe whatever it is. This whole love is in a whole other category. It's just a love that has, it's a choice to give Christ-like love. You say, how in the world could I ever do something like this? Well, good news that... Um, God will put this love. That's our next thing in verse 23. This is possible for the born again. Look at what he says there. Having been born again. Okay, so he's saying, you, you guys, you had affection, you have affection, but you need agape. You having been born again. In other words, he's saying, you've, you've been born again, right? So the Holy Spirit of God, Galatians 5.22, is producing in you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is agape. God produces this love in the heart of a Christian. You say, I don't know, can I, how could I love people that, you know, maybe they just don't even want anything to do with me. I mean, how can I give this sort of love? Well, you have to say, God, um, I know that your love in me can produce this sort of love. So I want to be obedient to you. I want your Holy Spirit to produce this love in my life that I might love the others around me 
as as you've called me to do it. This is the love expected of the saved. He says it's to be fervent. You know what that word means? Like intense, hot. That's what it means. Let me just ask a question, and I'm not, I don't want, I just want to challenge you with, with this. If this is true, if this, if this is what God expects of us, if this is true, what does it look like for a church to radically, fervently agape one another? What does that look like? What does it look like for you to do that? What does it look like for you personally to obey this commandment in your life? Would, would something have to change? Would something have to change in your life for you to obey this commandment? These are just questions I ask when I'm reading scriptures. It's possible for the born again. I love what he says there. So now he's going to talk about the word of God kind of through the rest of the thing. He says, having been, a born, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. There's the picture of the seed. He probably got this from Jesus, you know, and the seed is the word of God. And he says, you've been born again by this incorruptible seed. I love that. This is kind of an aside, but the word of God's like a seed. And, and I look at it as like, I'm going to leave my house and I'm going to go plant seeds in people's heart everywhere I go. I'm going to go to the gas station and, and, you know, guys, or I guess I don't go to the gas station, but I'm going to go to the Starbucks and be like, I want a a double espresso and then get up to the window and how are you doing today, brother? Oh yeah, it's pretty good. You know, this is the day the Lord has made. You know what I'm saying? He's coming back, right? And you're planting these seeds everywhere you go. I love that. He says, that's how you're born again. You get the word of God inside of you. You hear it. It gets planted in your heart. You believe it. And then it starts to produce fruit in your life. Ah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, love it. He says, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Now, and then he quotes Isaiah. He goes, because all flesh is as grass uh, and all the glory of man as the, as the flower of the grass. Uh, the grass withers, its flower falls away, but the word of God, uh, the word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, now, this is the word by which the gospel is preached to you. So he, he's saying that this commandment to love one another, it's eternally relevant. Because it comes from the word of God. I love that from Isaiah. All flesh is grass, and the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers. Listen, this is bad news for the anti-aging people. You know, like they make this, they make the anti-aging cream. You know, you go to the grocery store, and there's this line, there's this aisle with anti-aging cream. I see ladies going to some guys, too. Guess what? Um, Anti-wrinkle cream. So, guess what? Uh, You know, I put anti-wrinkle cream on these raisins I had for like six months. No change. You know what I mean? It's, it just doesn't, you know, here's the whole thing. We're, we're dying. But the word of God will stand forever. Jesus says this, heaven and earth will pass away with my word forever, for eternity. And the word of God certainly has endured, right? Many attempts to take it out. Nero, uh, Domitian, Roman emperors. You know, the biggest... You know, the biggest organi- you know, the organization, the biggest effort to remove the Bible, to take the Bible away, to destroy it, to hide it. Do you know who it's come from? It's come from the Roman Catholic Church. Tried to destroy the Bible many, many times. Domitian, it's a kind of a funny story. One of this emperors from 81 to 96 uh, AD, he, you know, tries to confiscate all the Bibles, um, all, the con- all the Christian writings, and uh, it-, it turns around by the end of his reign, um, Rome actually pays to have 50 Bibles created uh, through... Um, Constantine. So it's kind of funny how that all worked out, but the word of the Lord certainly endures. 1963, the Bible banned from schools. Uh, Just recently in Utah, primary schools banned the Bible for vulgarity and violence.
The Bible's eternal. The Word of God stands forever. So as you can see, God is interested in our conduct. We, like Peter's readers, live in a world that may be um, approaching that more and more. It's, it's a godless society. How are we to live? Are we to remove ourselves? Go hole up? No. Are we to try to create a utopian society with so many, uh, you know, and try to, you know, try to live separate? Like the Pharisees, they became, the, you know, they were the separatists. Are we supposed to be separate? Or are we supposed to do what Jesus says, where he says they're to be in the world, but not of the world? And that's what it means to be holy. It means to be in this world, to live for the very special purpose that you've been called to, not staining yourself, not living for stuff that's so beneath your calling, so beneath your worth, while in the midst of a dark world. Because God has put you here, me here, to be salt and light in this dark world. That's why he put you here. That's why you're in this community. It's why you have the neighbors you have. God has a purpose for you. Really, Jesus was the greatest example of this. He left heaven, he came into a world that is hostile towards him. He came to his own, his own received him not. He took on flesh, he, yet he remained set apart from sin and defilement. He only did the things that he saw the Father do. He came on a mission. He lived in a fallen world. He remained holy. We too are on this mission, called and sent by God. We too are called to live clean in a dirty world and to be holy.